so I'm the communications director uh, for Blue Marble Space, also a research scientist with the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. And our organization is a nonprofit organization focused on, on building a more sustainable future uh, through understanding Earth system science and space exploration. For me, I think about astrobiology as really our quest to understand life in the cosmos, period. How do we define life? Can we define life? What is consciousness? Are we humans intelligent? Uh, could there be other intelligence out there? And would we even recognize it if it's out there? Dr. Graham Lau, a.k.a. the Cosmobiologist, is our guest today, an astrobiologist that does nothing less than study the possibility of life elsewhere in our universe. So let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. And Graham, he tells you all of that, all of that, because he is in Florida. And so when you hear things about Florida man, they're talking about Tony. <laughs> they're talking they really about him are, specifically. Yeah. You, you are yeah. Florida man. <laughs> yeah. I am in fact Florida man. Oh God, no, help me. <laughs> yeah, it's it, just living here. You just, you just, you can't help but spend a day and just shake your head and go, "What mm -hmm. the heck was that guy thinking?" Uh, yeah, but then you, then you get rocket launches and. You know, Kennedy that, Space Center and Disney World and yeah, you get the, the Everglades and, yeah. you know. Dude, that rocket launch that just happened what, a couple weeks ago, yeah, uh, everybody's supposed to be social distancing and, uh, you know, uh, 200,000 people show up, a little over that actually, in Titusville. And yeah. it's like the Max Brewer Bridge that goes over the causeway uh, or that goes over the intercoastal, packed with people, man. It's just <laughs> crazy. I'm glad it didn't go. Yeah, um, no, I, I know like Jim Bridenstine, you know, he, he requested that people not come, you know, remain physically isolated. But I, I know a lot of folks who, who went down for it anyway. Yeah, I know. And uh, um, I stayed right here at home, at home and watched it in the comfort of my office here. It was great. So, yeah, I was I was uh, at my standing desk with my 11 month old son in my arms watching it. And that was fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I, you're not going to get a better view than what you're going to get with all those cameras, oh, you know, yeah, sitting yeah. there with NASA between NASA and SpaceX, and you know, really, literally, it's like five minutes and you're done, and then you got to, you know, you're you're on your phone watching the live stream anyway. So right. It's, mm -hmm. right. it's still it's still cool to see, but but Graham, you're a, you're an astrobiologist. You probably understand yeah. the uh, the risks of all of this biology stuff a little greater than everyone else that's going and standing shoulder to shoulder right now anyway. Somewhat. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not, you know, an epidemiologist by any means, but I've definitely spent some time, you know, thinking about the biology of viruses. Um, you know, for me, it's been more, you know, are viruses alive and, and those kinds of questions. Um, but I've definitely done some, done some studying too on, on the history of disease. Um, and so something like right now with this pandemic, I mean, it's, it's definitely a scary time for a lot of people. 
Well, yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, it raises a lot of questions, too, just thinking about space and space travel and people being locked together in close proximity, how quickly something like a mission could be devastated. You know, you think about even going to Mars, right? It can take the smallest thing creeping onto onto the ride to, you know, devastate the entire thing. I mean, coronavirus isn't a bad example of how quickly, you know, all of those plans can be shot. I mean, it it turned the whole world off for a period oh, yeah. of time. And so what does, what does, you're the first astrobiologist I've talked to, by the way. So I have a million questions. For also. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the first one is probably one that you've heard before, but what exactly does an astrobiologist do? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question to start off with. Uh, so astrobiology, depending on, on which astrobiologist you ask, uh, can be defined in a few different ways. Uh, if you if you ask NASA astrobiology, they'll say that astrobiology is the study of the the origins, the evolution, the distribution, and the future of life in the cosmos. Uh, for me, I think about astrobiology as really our quest to understand life in the cosmos. Period. Um, it really is the culmination of so many different uh, human studies, not just in sciences but in philosophy and, and other realms as well, to try to understand who and what we are in the cosmos. And because of that, uh, it's a very interdisciplinary field with a lot of different studies coming together. You have chemists and biologists, philosophers, uh, people studying psychology, people studying you know, various realms in physics and astrophysics and cosmology uh, who are working together to kind of you know, try to understand you know, how life started on Earth, uh, how life changed through time on our planet, whether or not we might find life elsewhere in our solar system or on exoplanets. Uh, there's so many questions that come into the scope of astrobiology. Uh, Mary, Mary Wojtek is the director of the NASA Astrobiology Program and the Earth Life Science Institute in Tokyo. And I, I love the way that she's put it, that, that really everyone can be an astrobiologist uh, just by being involved and asking questions about you know, what life is and why we're here. And so you'll meet people who are astrobiologists who you know, maybe study the origins of life and they're in the laboratory, you know, driving reactions forward to see what the earliest uh, catalytic reactions might have been to create genetic codes. Uh, you might meet people who are doing those kinds of things uh, in simulations using computer models to try to figure out how life started. Uh, you'll meet people who've done astrobiology or, or astrobiologists who are interested in planetary science and, and what kind of instruments we could send to, say, Mars or Europa or even Venus to look for signs of life. And so it's, it's a really wide field with a lot of different people working together to to ask some of these bigger questions together. And it's also a pretty new field too, isn't it? I mean, we're looking, what, a couple decades? This this wasn't even a job description. Yeah, it depends on how you look at it, really. I mean, we, we can look back to ancient peoples who've looked at the stars and wondered if there were other worlds. Uh, the, the idea of panspermia, for instance, comes from the ancient Greeks, from Anaxagoras, uh, you know, humans knew that, you know, rocks were falling from the heavens a long time ago. And that, that was an, an early way for people to say, well, are these rocks from other worlds out there in whatever this thing in the sky is uh, that has all these bright lights? Um, but as far as the name astrobiology goes, yes, it is fairly new. We've really only been using that term broadly, uh, especially in America, since about the mid 90s. The tools didn't exist to do the job or at least to the to do it, uh, you know, to the capacity that it's being done now. Wow, Tony, is that the thunderstorm in the background? <laughs> yeah. uh, that's that's good, beautiful. <laughs> wow. Oh, I that's missed the sound of thunder. 
We don't get that so much here in Colorado. No, No, California either. Yeah. So anyway, man, that sounds intense. Yeah. If this, uh, if this podcast explodes, we'll know why, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) man. Yeah. That is, that is very depthy. It's, it's way more to it than I would have guessed. I would have thought the job of an astrobiologist would have been one of two things specifically. One is how do we keep astronauts alive, um, traveling beyond the protection of the earth's magnetosphere? Right. Like that, that would be a major question for the next steps. Even if we wanted to go spend significant time on the moon, that's a very important question to answer, especially with the things that are being found, like like the blindness that's happening to uh, to astronauts that spend significant time there, you know, especially in, in one eye for some odd reason. Um, but then when you start talking about going beyond the moon, like to Mars, it just gets infinitely more complex uh, with all of the issues from here to there. I mean, that's a long way to go. And, uh, there's a lot of no man's land in between, right? Where the universe is, is more than happy to kill you. And so I would have thought, you know, especially with the, the current environment and just kind of like the privatization of space and everything kind of coalescing that direction, it seems that that would be one of the needs I could, I could certainly see, um, immediately. The other would be, of course, the search for life, right? And understanding what could potentially harbor life if it's not going to be like an oxygen-rich environment. What other type of environments in those sorts of questions, where should we be looking? But I never realized the depth that can be included in just astrobiology as a field. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's huge. Uh, You know, when it comes to philosophical questions, you know, how do we define life? Can we define life? What is consciousness? Are we humans intelligent? Uh, could there be other intelligence out there? And would we even recognize it if it's out there? Uh, there's so much to that realm in understanding life. Uh, and that first thing you mentioned, you know, trying to understand uh, the biology, um, you know, medical science for astronauts traveling to LEO and, you know, back to the moon, to near Earth objects, to Mars, and even beyond that in our solar system and beyond in the future. Uh, there's a, a very wide realm there as well called bioastronautics. Um, kind of within the, the aerospace engineering realm, where a lot of people are, are really trying to think about, you know, what can we do to make sure humans are healthy and safe, especially on a longer trip, say to Mars. Um, you know, if you have a two year long mission, you know, there's like six months getting out there a year or so on the surface and six months getting back. Uh, that's a lot of time to be in a much higher radiation environment than we're accustomed to. And it's a lot of time to be so far away from any potential medical service at all. Um, you know, so for instance, like in, in Antarctica in the winter um, at the South Pole base, the Mudson Scott base, you know, people have, have wintered down there. But if something really, really, really bad happens, we can get medical services down to Antarctica, even in the winter, if we need to sometimes. <laughs> uh, and so going out to Mars is a much different story. You know, there, there's, there's no place to stop. There's no hospital. Uh, and so we definitely have to be prepared for a lot of problems that could come up along the way. And, you know, right now with a virus, you know, and considering pathogens and various microbes that can harm us, um, there's a lot of questions there. What happens to our microbiome when we're exposed to that radiation for that long? How do we mitigate the radiation uh, on, the, on the way there and back as well as on the surface? Uh, there are so many questions that come up there. Uh, and so that's also a huge realm of study uh, in trying to figure out what's going to happen to humans when we do travel to space. Uh, out to those other areas. 
Those sounded like the most complex questions that have ever existed <laughs> to humanity. I mean, even the first one that you mentioned casually, which is how do you define life? Uh, I remember in philosophical uh, philosophy classes that question coming up, and you'd think on the surface, all right, well, we can we can answer this. But then the more you dig into it, it's like, oh, you get all these answers. And what you start to realize is the more you you kind of break it down, you you can even take that chemistry approach of, you know, construction through reduction. Let's just break this down to the simplest components to define life. But then you get to the point where it's like people are saying, well, life is energy. And then you're like, so, so are we going to call adenosine and phosphate groups? We're going to call that life now, you know, and you're like, well, that doesn't work. Right. So what are we going to call it? We're going to call it electricity. So our calcium charges now that that, you know, spark muscular contractions. Is that life now? No, of course not. You know, but it's like, well, where do you define it? How do you define it? Yeah, it's, it's a really hard question because when it comes down to it, you know, and looking for life and trying to understand, you know, if we can find life out there, we're basically right now relying on a working idea of what life is. Uh, if if you go and, and search up like def, you know, search for definitions of life, you'll find one that's pretty common for astrobiologists, and, and you'll read this one a lot. Uh, it's sometimes called the NASA definition of life, uh, even though NASA hasn't necessarily officially adopted it. Uh, and that definition is that uh, life is a self-contained chemical system capable of undergoing Darwinian evolution. And it's a pretty good definition for what we know life is here on Earth. Uh, it fits what a lot of life is, but it still has problems. You know, and, and, and one of the big ones that pops out right away for a lot of people is right now, you know, a lot's going on with machine learning and artificial intelligence. You know, if in the near future we can create a somewhat intelligent artificial intelligence uh, somewhere near our level, um, would that be a living thing? Would it be life, even if it's contained inside of a computer? Um, and, you know, we, we don't have a good way of understanding that. Yet, and there, there could be a chance that a lot of alien life becomes uh, what some philosophers refer to as post-biological, uh, having transitioned from you know our, our organic biological lives into some some other thing that goes beyond that. Uh, whether that's you know downloading your brain in a computer or creating artificial intelligence or you know somehow transferring whatever uh, our species is into is in, into that next uh, that next piece that next thing. Um, and so there's a lot of questions there, but if you actually look for like definitions of life, there's several hundred that oh, have yeah. been attempted. Uh, and, you know, and when it comes down to it, we're just still not happy about it. <laughs> yeah, there, it, it doesn't. And even the one that NASA is offering, do either of you know the answer? I don't as to why they would want uh, that Darwinian component. Why does it have to be able to evolve in order to call it life? Why would they add that? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, because really when it comes down to it, the whole definition is, is based on life as we know it. And when we start looking at what life does, one of the things that discriminates life right now as we know it is that life does change. It does adapt to its environment. Um, but then you have a good, you know, good questions there about things that can't reproduce. For instance, if you make a mule and that mule is sterile, is that mule no longer alive because it can't reproduce and pass on its genes? Uh, and so at that point, are you only then then able to discuss life, you know, looking at populations and not at individuals? Uh, and you start getting a lot of questions there as well when you start, you know, really digging into that that definition. I didn't think that you could have a definition of life as broad as that and have it be so constraining at the same time. Uh, <laughs> yeah. like, when, I, when I first heard you say it, it was like, uh, you know, the, the it was such a broad generalization of what life could be. It could, it could basically be anything. 
but then it also like cuts out a lot of things that we know have have life that wouldn't apply in this definition. It's very strange. Yeah, absolutely. And then like, you know, right now viruses, a, a lot of people right now are learning a lot more about what viruses are. And, you know, if you ask a bunch of different scientists, if a virus is alive, you're going to get a bunch of different answers and they won't all just be yes and no. A lot of people are kind of on the fence, you know, not really sure what we should consider viruses. Uh, should we just call them biological machines or, or you know, can, can they actually fit within this definition of life? Uh, because they are a self-contained system, um, but they themselves are not capable of, of doing anything of the, the biological process of, of reproducing themselves. They require a host to make that happen. Uh, and so that, that, that throws a big wrench into the works as well into trying to figure out what life is. And for those of us who want to know if we're alone in the universe and, and really want to go out to Mars and to the clouds of Venus and, and to the ice on Europa and using our telescopes to look at exoplanets to look for life, it's kind of problematic that we're not exactly sure what life is because there's a chance that there's life out there that we won't recognize if, <laughs> even if we see it right in front of us. Yeah, well, you could be sure that once we start going to these places and start poking around and doing chemistry tests and stuff like that out there, suddenly our idea of what life is is going to get really broad. We're going to be like, oh, yeah, this is a lie. No, no, really, it is because it has this one thing to it. It can respirate. And look mm. at it dividing. That's life, man. That is life. And you're going to be sitting yeah. suddenly we're going to be. Yeah, life is, uh, you know, sure. Big, Slightly but, different than what definition. we thought. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> but, yeah. yeah. I, I love Tony's <laughs> definition of exploration, though. <laughs> Humankind's best attempts at exploration. He's like, well, you know, they're off to Europa just poking around over there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, at its uh, core, that's what we're doing. We're poking I mean, around <laughs> on Mars right now, aren't we? We're poking around. It Mars. really kind of is. If, if you think about it, I mean, I, I, yeah. I'm, I'm also a geochemist uh, in training. And if you sent me to Mars, I would spend a lot of time just poking around the rocks themselves just to see what's what's there. So see? I dig it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it, it's fascinating, though. And, and, you know, I think the chances are good that the first life we find somewhere else, we will need to have this definition nailed down. Because I don't think we're going to find the type of life first where you walk up and it walks up and, like, it pulls a gun on you. You know, I don't think it's going to be that kind of life that we find well, first. For, well, ho hopefully not a gun. <laughs> it's yeah. going to draw something on you. That's spectacular um, on many levels, but uh, yeah. But, but you know, but but, but yeah. I will throw this out that there there is a chance that the first life we'll find will be intelligent life. That 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 is possible. Uh, we don't know yet. You know, we, we might be alone in the solar system, though. Many of us, you know, we want to get to Mars and see if there was ever life there, or, or if there, you know, possibly is still life there as well as to Europa and Enceladus and other worlds in our solar system. Uh, but, you know, what happens if, if tomorrow we get a message from an intelligent alien race that's out there? Uh, it's, it's possible that might be the first place where we actually have some other sign of life as well. Uh, and even, you know, even with our, our earliest, you know, attempts to figure out if we're alone here, like the Viking landers on Mars, uh, Carl Sagan uh, had wanted to make sure the cameras would be able to pick up a, a being if it was like, you know, like walking across the desert of Mars by the camera, uh, because we just didn't know then if that might actually happen or not. It uh, doesn't seem likely now that we've gone and done so much work there, but uh, we might find, you know, some, some creature that is a larger multicellular organism um, or even an intelligent, you know, uh, race out there or some kind of thing that we call a techno signature, a sign of, in, of intelligence, of technology being used by, by an alien race. Well, 
I have two questions that I'm dying to ask you. So my my first one um, is this is something that I think about all the time, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this. We know from work that Carl Sagan's done in the past and, and other since that if you have an early Earth, um, early Earth environment like we've had uh, in in, the, in our history, that the building blocks for life, the primordial ooze that one makes from all of these ingredients coming together, uh, is relatively straightforward and can can probably happen uh, multiple uh, is, is easily recreatable, I guess. So my question to you is, if you have a, an, a situation where all, you have all of the ingredients for life, but you don't have life, you just have all these organic compounds sitting in a, in a pool somewhere, describe for me what you think the process is from which life would then come from that. And then I'd like to get your thought on, do you think that is an easy thing to have happen or a hard thing to happen? Is it easy to get life, something that is alive, what, by whatever definition we want to use, probably some of the more simpler ones, is it easy to, for that to arise out of complex organic chemistry? It's a great question. And, and I think the real answer right now is, is we don't really know. Uh, so, you know, what you're discussing uh, can, can be called the, the Miller-Urey experiments is the, the famous example. Well, that was, um, yeah, that's the one that Sagan, or that Sagan alluded to in Cosmos. But I think we've yeah, done more, and, com- and, more complicated and things but since then. We have, but it's still kind of doing something very similar, taking what we think would be the early Earth environment, its atmosphere, its oceans, and seeing what kinds of, of molecules are created in those, those environments and those systems uh, based on the kinds of inputs of energy you might have, for instance. Um, and the issue right now, though, is, is the jump from those early biological molecules or, or, or you know, pre-biological molecules, uh, these molecules that are the building blocks of life as we know it, but that themselves aren't actually constituting life. I mean, we, we find these things in asteroids and comets. Uh, so we know that they're formed in space. Uh, we can find them in, in you know, giant clouds out in space. Uh, and so they form very easily. They can form on Earth very easily. We know that. The process of then having all of those chemicals mixing together to jump up to making things like RNA um, and even things like proteins uh, and then encapsulating all of that inside of a cell. Uh, there's a lot of different steps along the way, and we're not really sure yet which steps happened first uh, and the order they came in to make it all happen. Uh, and also the environments uh, that allowed for these things to happen. We're still not sure. There, there are some people who are really convinced that it most likely happened you know, at a hydrothermal vent, for instance, on the bottom of the ocean. Uh, but then others think that you actually needed dry land. You, you needed continental material with dry land in order to have this happen. Uh, so, so for instance, uh, Dave Deemer and Bruce Dam- uh, Deemer recently published a paper on their hot spring origin of life theory, uh, where they proposed that it was the, the wetting and drying cycles on dry land around hot spring environments, kind of like Yellowstone, uh, that would have been necessary to have those steps that went from those prebiological molecules up to actual biological molecules to create things like RNA. Because uh, the process of getting the backbone, the, the phosphate backbone on RNA and DNA, getting that backbone onto uh, those ribose sugars and, and, and having that process happen is actually not as easy uh, as it might seem. Uh, and so we really don't know how those steps all happen to come together and make that life. Uh, and honestly, when it comes down to it, there, there's a lot of you know people doing amazing research right now on origins of life uh, studies. Uh, like I said, they're doing it in the laboratory and actually studying what's what's being created in these processes. They're also doing it 
uh, using simulations and computer models to try to figure out uh, how these steps all happened and what the most likely pathway was. But even then, there's a good chance we're never going to know how it started here on Earth. Uh, you know, what I like to tell people is that the best chance of us ever knowing how life first started on Earth is if there is an intelligent extraterrestrial race out there who's been watching us, you know, for the last four plus billion years, and they actually have some kind of record of it. Because otherwise, uh, the geological record has basically been mostly destroyed from those early, early, early eras. Uh, and those molecules themselves wouldn't have survived very easily either, uh, you know, let alone having life then march on for billions of years to eat everything around it. Uh, and so there's a good chance we'll never know. But I, I do think that we're getting very, very close right now in the studies of the origins of life to figuring out at least one, if not several ways that life can start. So you don't think it's possible to like just model this or to do experiments that replicate early, early life arising? You don't think that's something oh, I, you can do? I, I think I think we're gonna I think we're getting there. I, I think it's still some ways off to actually show that it, we can have these proto molecules, these these the prebiological molecules, go from that to being life. Uh, and so, like I said, people are doing these simulations, you know, in, in the laboratory to try to figure out the steps that happen to make life, but we still don't have the exact recipe. Yeah, I've heard about this things getting wet and drying, wet and drying being a crucial component to life starting, um, and I've I've heard it described as you know I used to think of this as a spark situation where we, we had all the ingredients for life and then we had a spark of life and then suddenly mm -hmm. it was alive um, and the people and and, and it turns out it, it's more of a spectrum of more complicated organic chemistry until finally you have something resembling life. It's not so much a, a, a discontinuity. It's more of a spectrum of, of gradually complicated more chemistry. And then finally you have something that's alive, but this wetting and drying part, it does seem to be a, a feature that I've heard twice now. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So yeah, okay. cause there's just a, a lot we're not sure about as far as the, the steps that are necessary. But when you have things like those wetting and drying cycles that they can help drive these reactions forward that can actually put these molecules together and then have them kind of march forward into life. But, you know, even then we're, we're, we're still working. A, a lot of folks are doing incredible research right now in that realm. The second question is, do you think human beings in our current physical state, in our current biological state, do you think we can really survive space? I worry that space is deadly to us. Once we start getting out of the magnetosphere, I think space is going to kill us. And if it doesn't kill us, it's going to change us so much that we are we can't come back, right? We like if we spent a year on Mars or even, you know, uh maybe not even that long that we couldn't really be able to come back and adapt here to Earth. We are so finely tuned to being not just on Earth, on on the, on a planet, but being on Earth, we have to have this amount of gravity. We have to have this amount of air. We have to every you screw up any of these things, and we die. So I just wonder what your thoughts on that are, uh, as far as being able to travel, not and, and being go to the moon and Mars and human beings being in space. Absolutely, yeah, we we are very much Earthlings. <laughs> we we yeah. have very much evolved to to fit our world around us. And, and even there's a lot of parts of our planet that will kill us. Uh, you know, you can't go bathing in the hot springs at Yellowstone. Uh, we're not, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're not really made biologically to be very uh -huh. deep in the water. You know, we're, we're actually very terrible at swimming, uh, for, you know, sustained periods. 
Uh, and, you know, we're very much meant to be walking on land and then, you know, have a nice comfortable temperature around us. You know, we need some oxygen in our air to breathe. Um, and so there's actually a lot of folks who've argued, uh, one, that we can do really incredible research in space using just robots. Yep. And it's a very compelling argument because it's cheap compared to building crude space programs to send humans uh, to other worlds. Um, and so there's, it's a very good argument that we could send lots of robots. However, honestly, if you put a really good geologist on Mars for a week, uh, that geologist can do a lot more than what we currently can do with our rovers in like a year. Uh, you know, we, we can do a lot of research with our rovers, but humans can also do a lot of stuff. And so there, there is an argument there for sending humans, but say we get better and better robots and we start investing more in better instrumentation, uh, especially some autonomy. So the robots can actually make decisions on their own to some degree as to which samples to take and which data to send back to earth. Uh, that'll be a game changer for sure. And we're already working in that realm a lot, uh, as to you know, getting more payoff scientifically out of these robotic missions. There are also people who've argued that if we humans are ever really going to go to space to settle on Mars or to go explore the, the moons of Jupiter and Saturn and Uranus or Neptune, or if we're going to send humans into interstellar space, that the human creature itself will need to evolve differently. That might even include genetic engineering of what we humans are that we might need to actually create another version of ourselves, basically, uh, using genetic engineering to, to make it easier for humans to withstand these other environments. Um, of course, that would be a massive technological undertaking, but also a, a very large you know, ethical question for us as a society to, to, to consider. However, uh, as I mentioned, we, we, we humans are very much earthlings. This is our home. But there's also that, that powerful thing about being human that we have this urge to go and learn more. We, we have this urge to explore. You know, to explore is, is to be human in very, in very many ways. And so for us to leave the earth, uh, a powerful thing happens when we leave the earth and we look back and we see our home and we see it as what it is. It's, it's this rock in space orbiting a fairly average star. And all of humanity right now are together on this world. Uh, it really is a powerful way for us to see ourselves uh, in the nature of the universe. And so for me, one of the most compelling reasons to send humans to space, to send humans to Mars, is because you know we, we have that want to go and explore more and to see more of, of who and what we are. Uh, having a human stand on the surface of Mars and look back and see our Earth in the sky, uh, that would be a really powerful moment for a lot of us on the planet. Uh, not everyone, though. I'm, I'm sure there are people who don't want that to happen. But uh, I think in general, uh, this experience of exploring space as humans has been something powerful for a lot of us. Do you think uh, that's going to be a requirement that we're going to have to do something like, <clears throat> excuse me, something like that? You know, uh, yeah, make it? it's an interesting question, right? Because like biologically, we're not really well built to survive on the surface of a world like Mars. I, I'm not um, at all convinced we can do it. I think it'll yeah. kill us. Um, I mean, it, it's definitely going to be hard, but there are you know a lot of people who have spent a lot of time thinking about how to mitigate the radiation, uh, how to produce the air that we need to breathe, the rocket fuel that we need from the atmosphere and the regolith, the soil of Mars. Uh, so for instance, our next Mars rover from NASA, uh, the Perseverance rover, uh, which should launch here this summer, 
uh, it has an instrument, a, a test instrument on it called Moxie. And this instrument's job is, is to take in the carbon dioxide from the Martian atmosphere, and it's going to use electrochemistry on board to create oxygen. Uh, that, you know, and, and the test here is, is to see, can we create oxygen using these technologies if we send humans to Mars so that we don't have to send all of their air along with them? Uh, also, that oxygen can then be used to launch a rocket to send someone back from Mars as well. Um, but, you know, like the, the radiation environment, you know, getting there and on the surface of Mars, it, it's very dangerous for human beings. We're not really developed to, to handle that kind of radiation consistently. And so we are going to have to think about how to mitigate that, how to protect our astronauts from that. Yeah. And so I think getting to Mars, you know, yeah, we could do that. And I, I think we could actually do it right now if we, we put some money into it. But sending humans much, much further out than that is going to require some more technology development um, if we're going to send humans as we are now. Or like I said, there are you know some people who are arguing that we really are going to have to change what we are to go explore further. Yeah, a couple, well, a couple of things. First, I'm probably going to go to that launch because that one really has me excited. The one that's going oh, with, yeah. <laughs> uh, the, with uh, perseverance. But uh, uh, but and also, I think that if we do do these things that you're talking about, uh, that and we make the technology changes that have to be made to get us into space and survive it, I think still it will alter us to a point where. Um, where we may not be able to actually get back to earth. But can I just ask both of you and Dustin, I know you think about this stuff too. Um, what do you think the ethic, what, what do you think um, the, you know, are, are you morally justified? Do we think in changing our species just so that we can have this exploration moment where we look out and see the earth? Do you think we're morally justified in, in changing ourselves that way? Man, if this that's is what the it hardest. Takes to survive. This is this is the most challenging podcast we've ever done. Tony. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> you're you're the astrobiologist. Why don't you tackle that one first, and then I'll just yeah. Well, so I understand you do have a background in philosophy, though, as well. So <laughs> it might yeah. be a good place to to apply some some ethical consideration. And, and and like I mentioned, you know this this is a big question, uh, and it's not for one person to answer. This is a human question, and it's it's one of those places. I, I think we're seeing this right now uh, in our world you know, with the pandemic, as well as uh, the current protest going on for racial injustice here in the United States and across the world. You know, we really have a lot of work to do yet um, in coming together as a species and being able to come to the table and discuss, you know, our problems, let alone these really, you know, much deeper questions about, you know, what is life? Can we can we change humans in the future? Um, and it's going to be hard, but I think it's worth doing, maybe even because it's hard. I, I think we're going to have to have people come to the table and, and present their arguments um, based on their perspectives, their backgrounds, their culture, their history, uh, as to why we, we should or should not change humans. Um, you know, another example right now, uh, when it comes to messaging extraterrestrial intelligence, something called METI, uh, there are a lot of people right now who are worried that we're already sending messages out to potential extraterrestrial intelligences uh, because no one, you know, we've never had any government body or organization come together to decide who gets to speak for Earth. And that's a really big ethical question. Who, who gets to speak for all of us? It's an outstanding um, question. You know, and, and so when it comes to, you know, should we genetically engineer humans for the future? Uh, there's a lot of questions to unpack there. For instance, you know, if you're genetically engineering a child, that child doesn't have a choice in what's happening. That person will grow up based on how you've changed them. Uh, and so there's a lot of questions there. You know, like, do do we have the, the ability, the... the, the allowance to do that to somebody else uh, and start making those jumps forward. 
Uh, and also, you know, a, a lot of people would consider what we currently are is, you know, in, in their various religious understandings, their, their, their various cultural understandings, uh, to be something for them that's very sacred and special. And so they might not want us to, to change what the human being is. And so it's a very, very big question. Um, almost, it almost feels like I have weight on my shoulders right now just thinking about it. Um, That's why I made you go first. My job here is done. (laughs) My job here is complete. Yeah, it's it's a a very significant question. Okay, Um, so I'll I'll tackle tackle it a little differently then. Um, I don't think that it is a living's generation responsibility to secure a life for the people coming next. Now, now don't get me wrong. I don't think that what we should say is they don't matter. You know, our, our future generations don't matter. That's, it's almost the opposite of what I'm saying. I think what we should say is that it is the job of the generations living now to make sure that while they are here, they improve humanity's situation as much as possible and it almost goes to this idea of like manifest destiny, right? Back, uh, what was that? The the Westbury 19- expansion. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, right. So, um, yeah, the idea that like, what option do we have but to change our environment? It's happening whether we intend to or not, but making responsible decisions to change it for the benefit of humanity, even if it's not something where people are going to be born into the same world that we're born into today. They never have been. It's always been an evolutionary process, right? In the world, especially over the last hundred years, no two generations in the last hundred years have lived in the same world, right? And so I just think, I mean, things are expanding and happening so fast now that you almost have to embrace the idea that change is the future. Change itself is the future. And if it opens the door to better security for humanity as a whole, then I think that the obligation is actually on the other side, not protecting what we currently have, but protecting what we will. Well, I just point out that, you know, that just the humanity as a whole part is an important qualifier there for what you just said, because it could definitely be argued that the manifest destiny uh, example was not morally justified and better for whom is is, is that's always the case. Yeah. yeah. So if there's a winner, so, there's always a loser. And then so then the moral question is, is it worth having a loser in order to have a winner? Right. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, I get what you're saying. It's just what option do we have? The other option is to throw our hands in the air and just say, let's turn our back on progress. Right. Let's do that. And let's stay where we are. And when has that when has that ever served humanity? There have been cultures to do it and they're not super successful in the well, grand scheme. Okay. And, and, yeah, I hear you Dustin, but I'm, I, you know, I that's not exactly the 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 point I was going you know, I mean, I get that that um, you know, this would this could be considered progress, but what if going into space and exploring and doing the exploration of the universe or even our solar system is the exact analogous analogy to just all of us running off a cliff. (laughs) What if space kills us? Right. And we may be doing this thinking we're being, being in progress, but what if it is a cliff that we're all running off of and we die? Um, and I wanted that. So I I wanted to get you guys' thoughts on that. And it's both of you made. It's challenging. I think that you have a couple of generations where the truth is um, it's just not 
it's not what what I would say. And this is in quotes, right? But it's not fair to a couple of generations what they're going to have to endure um, because of the decisions made by the generations before them. But yeah. again, how many times has that been the case to get humanity where it is now? And I bet if you went back and you asked the dinosaurs if they would pay that cost, if it would get them a space, you know, a, a space intellect that could have protected them, they'd say, "Well, yeah, it's probably worth it." You know, we would have done that if we could have stopped that damn thing from coming and wiping us out, you know. And so sometimes there's just a cost to be paid for progress. And I think that it's not there's nothing pretty about it. And there are generations that are going to have a lower or a less quality life than maybe some of those that came before. And that feels unnatural. It does, but it's happened before, and I think it's it's bound to happen again. But ultimately, it's we have to ask the question of where are we going? Where will we be when we get where we're going? That's the question that always comes up, right? Yeah, and I, to add on to that, not, not only where will we be when we get go, get going there, you know, and, but will we be together? Right. You know, right. this idea of so manifest destiny, westward expansion, for instance, is, is an example there where you know you had this idea from the, these these settlers moving west that the land was free for them to go and and expand and explore into. To you know, to go and go and conquer the West, mm-hmm. but there were already people living there. That's right. Uh, and, and you know, we uh, the, the consequences of that were dire um, for a very large number of people, as well as for some cultures, some languages, some history that was lost uh, for all time because of that. Uh, and we have to ask that question right now too with space exploration. Uh, so you know, so far less than six hundred people have all gone have gone to space, and of those people, it's not a very good representation of of all the people around the world. That's a really good point. You know, and, and so what's going to happen, you know, I, I think if we really do want to make space exploration uh, with sending humans into space, not just robots, uh, something that has great value for all of us uh, that we can all share in together, I think we need more people from different backgrounds, different perspectives, uh, different stories um, to share uh, going to space to experience that 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 overview that that look down at our world from above uh, to work together and living on a space station or on the moon or beyond uh, I think it's going to be interesting uh, and right now we have a lot of people who are, are very worried that if we don't fix our current problems that we have here uh, that we'll just take those problems with us to space to Mars to the moon uh, and that that's possible and so I think one of the most important things we could do right now in, in human space exploration, is to get more people with more backgrounds into space uh, to start sharing in that adventure as a, as a human race. Yeah. Well, I think that's one of the, one of the great redeeming qualities of humanity, right? Is that we can see the benefits and also share the remorse at the same time. And I think manifest destiny, the, the, the thing you just brought up about how it, it came, what it did was it created a possibility for, one of, if not the great, I'll say the greatest, I know a lot of people would disagree with me, but the greatest nation to ever exist to do that and to achieve things like landing on the moon and bringing humanity further than it ever has. But at the same time, I think that there's a very real thing. I know there is in me, and I'm sure that you two share the same thing. It's like, ah, but, but look at the cost. Look at what happened to people and how devastating that is. And it's awful. And I think that the fact that we can feel both pieces of that kind of protects us from going too far in any one direction most of the time, not all of the time. But I think that space will be no different. I think that we have that sense of cost 
as a, you know, as a whole across humanity. And we, we clearly lose our way. You don't have to look too far in history books to see that. But I think we'll be protected by ourselves going through that. Now, now, what are the unknowns that Tony's talking about? Is space the cliff that we're ready to jump off of? I mean, that's why we're counting on you to figure that stuff out, Graham. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's a big question, right? Yeah, yeah really. Um, that's the, the thing is, though, I mean, we have to consider, though, what, 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 if, what if not going to space is the cliff that we're jumping that's off exactly, of? That's exactly, yeah, um, which what, is more what likely. If, yeah, what if, you know, we, we have a lot of existential threats facing us already right now, let alone something like a giant rock coming from space and hitting our world. Uh, and so maybe going to space is the way to avoid the cliff. And it might just be that, that in general, intellectual beings, when they, they arise within a biosphere and a, and a biosphere starts to gain intelligence, it might be that, that the natural course of things is that that intelligence then figures out how to get off that biosphere and go and, and populate other worlds and create new biospheres. Uh, or it might be that that intelligence is eradicated uh, by its own doing or through natural processes. Yeah. Yeah. See, I, I think that a lot. Um, the, 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 it's not clear to me that, you know, we ever learn, uh, as, as a species, we, there are plenty of examples of, of civilizations rising and falling, rising and falling, and they all follow these eerily similar patterns, uh, throughout our, throughout our own history. And I believe absolutely that if we do go into space, we'll take our problems with us and not, and not really solve anything. But, but, you know, whether we stay or whether we go um, is going to be largely, I think, dependent on this question of our biology. And I just wonder if it's a hard limit for us without having to become a digital person, which brings up all sorts of philosophical issues there. But, you know, can we do this thing at all? Will our biology let us? And that's that's the question I think that faces astrobiologists like you and certainly if we're going to go into space at all, that it's, it's paramount. And so I think about that a lot. There's got to be a, just a grand perspective shift. Actually, I, I know there is because you can see in the documentaries where the astronauts are there talking about looking back at the earth when you're there, that they lose track of what the borders meant, what nationalities meant and all of that. And like, there's this unifying experience of looking back and realizing we share this planet. And I wonder if that perspective shift is powerful enough for, to kind of, cancel out some of the stuff you're talking about, Tony, where you're saying like, we will bring our problems with us. I wonder if we will bring the sum of all of them with us or if, or if there's going to be, if they're going to be diminished or somehow, you know, changed by going up there and sharing this new challenge together. Cause I can't imagine a greater challenge and people faced with challenge tend to lean on each other. Yeah. I hope you're yeah. right. I do. I, I, I certainly hope that's, that's true that this sense of awe and, you know, change of perspective on this, on such a massive scale would be enough to change our human nature to the point where we are more I, productive. I know if I was going to Mars with someone, I would not give a damn where they were from. I would just hope they knew what they were doing and could keep me alive, <laughs> man. <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah, want the best people on that trip for sure. Absolutely, yeah. man. You, you, you don't want the B team on your, on yeah. your trip to Mars. That's right. Um, but you know, it is interesting. You, you bring up this this uh, perspective shift, this cognitive shift. Uh, so Frank White in 1987 wrote the book, The Overview Effect. Where, where he interviewed astronauts, and, and the book's now had several editions, and there's far more interviews in it right now, uh, where Frank's talked to a lot of astronauts about that experience they've felt while looking at the Earth from space, and, and he called it the overview effect, uh, this, this psychological shift 
where you know they they see the world without borders, without you know any national borders. You can't see them at all from space, uh, and they feel a unity, a oneness with other human beings and with our biosphere in general. Uh, and a lot of them also report because of that that they they, they have a, a renewed sense of needing to do something to fix the issues that we have here. They actually have a drive towards action to want to help to fix some of these problems. Oh, that's, uh, and that's really yeah. important. Yeah, uh, I agree. You know, in this idea. And so if we get you know, more people in space from different countries, different backgrounds, if we get some more artists and poets and writers and philosophers into space, uh, you know, more people with different kinds of ways of expressing that, that experience, of sharing that experience, um, will, they, will, will we learn more about it? Will we learn more about ourselves along the way? And a big question is, could that be enough to help us uh, to not eradicate our problems, but at least to start treating them in some way together by having these stories of being together in all of this thing uh, that is the cosmos? I mean, we, we, are, we are here on this one rock together right now in this one moment in time. And so, you know, if people, more people can see us from space, maybe they'll come back and can help us to share that story of what it means to be human as opposed to being an American or Chinese or, you know, from some other nation. Um, and we can start removing some of these ideas that, that keep us apart. Boy, for that to work, we're going to have to get a good percentage of the population up there and looking around because um, it's, it's just it's going to need to make a dent. I guess you could start with the world leaders, right? You could start with all the people <laughs> in charge and say, go up there and look around, will you please? And, yeah. and, and get your stuff together. Get down here. Make your priorities right. <laughs> yeah, but the, the, the astronaut uh, Edgar Mitchell uh, has a famous quote, and I don't know it offhand exactly, but basically said that that the view from the moon of looking back at the Earth it made him want to grab grab one of these politicians, you know, by their jacket and drag them up there and make them look at the earth from that far and say, like, you know, look at this, you know, and, yeah, and, and try yeah, to yeah. Un- get them to understand that perspective. Uh, and so, the, you know, this has been an idea for quite some time is to have, <laughs> have our world right. leaders get this understanding as well. Yeah, that's a really funny idea. But I know what Tony was really saying is just put all the world leaders in an experimental (laughs) rocket and shoot them into space. Just just launch launch them straight from the sun, man. Yeah, just (laughs) launch them from the sun. They'll be all right. Yeah, goodbye out there. Goodbye, (laughs) goodbye. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) just start start all over again. Start fresh. Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Well, listen. are, Are you familiar? Where, do you know um, Gilbert? Le, Le, is it Levine or Levin? Gil Levin, yeah. Gil, you, okay, um, he wrote a blog uh, post on Scientific American last year that I want to get your opinion on, where he claims that NASA, with the um, with the Viking lander in the seventies, uh, actually did um, find evidence of life on on Mars when it looked and. Do you what do you think of that statement? And why don't we have more of our rovers with this capability of finding life? We we don't we, we haven't done it since Viking, according to him. Yeah, so we, we so he's right. So so Gil, Gil Levin, um, Gilbert Levin is is the PI uh, for one of the instruments that was on the Viking lander, right. uh, and and so the Perseverance rover that we're launching this summer will be the very first mission since the Viking landers for NASA that will specifically have a mission objective of looking for alien life. Uh, we haven't done it since Viking. We, we had a lot of missions that have considered uh, looking for you know, whether or not a place is habitable for life, uh, whether there could be conditions or the right geology for life, but we haven't included that since Viking. 
um, because it's been one, it's difficult, and two, there's there's some politics in, inside of that. Then adding that to a mission objective. But with Viking, so we we had four uh, biological experiments on board Viking, um, and I'm gonna have a hard time remembering all of them. There was a GCMS, um, a gas exchange, one that was a pyrolytic release. Um, and then Gil Levin specifically. So, so the important one here is was something called labeled release. Right. That's um, what he references in his, in his post. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's, that's the instrument that he was, he was the PI for. Uh, and it's the instrument that we actually, so we had, a, a an issue with that it wasn't a confirmation of life, but we had, uh, the, the instrument recorded results that could be potentially indicative of life, um, of a biological process. Um, but again, it wasn't a confirmation. It, it was unconfirmed, but potential. And the, the issue with this, and, and Gil Levin has argued this over the years many times. Uh, he's had several papers, you know, where he's argued this uh, over the last several decades. Uh, one paper that came out, I think around like, I want to say 2009 or so, um, he had a whole bunch of scientists and other professionals uh, sign off basically um, saying that they thought that the results were ambiguous and so we should send another instrument like this back uh, to, see, to, to redo the experiment. Um, and I, I absolutely agree with that. Uh, I think that the, the results were intriguing. We should definitely try the experiment again. And we can even do it better now because we have better technology, better instrumentation. Uh, the place where I have an issue, though, uh, is that uh, Levin has continued to argue that he found life. That's, uh, yeah, he, he flat out says it. Yeah, <laughs> he, he, he says that. He, he, to him, he found life. Like he, he, he thinks that that was an absolute positive detection and, and something that the Viking results showed us is that when it comes to, you know, if, if we do find alien life, if, if we, if you, if you have a bunch of scientists, you know, come out uh, with, with world leaders and say, Hey, we did it. We found life. There's a good chance. It's not going to be results from just one instrument. Um, if, if we're going to find like ancient life on Mars or even present life on Mars, there, it's most likely going to have to be several different uh, methods of making the detection together uh, for us to feel certain uh, because you have an issue that there could be other things going on that could explain the potential positive result of one instrument. And so we really need multiple lines of evidence coming together. And th there's actually a whole realm right now. Uh, I'm working with the Center for Life Detection at NASA Ames uh, to develop a, a knowledge base of all of our knowledge in life detection. And one thing we're really considering right now is, is how do we take the right mix of potential biosignatures together and with them say, hey, this is a living thing. This is life or this is a sign of past life. Um, and it's a, it's a really big question. Uh, and so while I personally agree with Levin that the results are intriguing enough to justify sending another version of that experiment back, uh, I don't agree that it was an absolute detection of life. Got it. Okay. Thank you for that. I appreciate the input. Um, if I, if I, if I remember right, uh, if I was reading it correctly, I think what basically it's just a matter of squirting water on some, on some dirt and taking some measurements of that and just seeing what compounds are in there. Um, yeah. And so basically you're, you're using uh, radio tagged carbon. So carbon that, that is, has a, a different number of isotopes, uh, of a different kind of carbon. Uh, and you're basically feeding that to the Mars soil to see if something is actually going to uh, be using it uh, yeah. for life. Right. Uh, so, so whether or not it's going to take in these molecules, eat it, and basically like we do, uh, respire out carbon dioxide. That was it. Yeah, carbon dioxide was the, was the key thing they were looking for. 
Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, that's neat. Yeah, and that's why it was called labeled release because we had these labeled carbon atoms that, that are, aren't really labeled, you know, technologically. They're just, they have, it's a different isotope of carbon um, in these molecules, this, this nutrient broth that we're giving the soil. And the idea is if that there are organisms that are life as we know it, that eat that kind of nutrient and exhale CO2 the way we do, uh, then they should be exhaling some CO2 that has that label, that different isotope inside of it. And perseverance, you say, is going to do something akin to this? Well, so not akin necessarily. Oh. Uh, so it's in, in the mission objectives. Uh, so perseverance will be the first mission that, that actually has stated that it's going to be looking for signs of life. Uh, so Curiosity, for instance, uh, when we sent Curiosity to Mars, uh, its mission, part of its mission, uh, was to look for signs of habitability, uh, whether or not the past or the present area around Gale Crater could be habitable for life as we know it. Uh, but they didn't go the extra step of saying we're actually looking for signs of life. Uh, but now with Perseverance, that's actually now written into, into the objectives to look for potential signs of life. Um, we might not achieve that objective and, and we might not find those signs, um, but now we actually have another mission that actually is specifically looking for life. So weird. I wonder why we waited so long to do this again or even something close to it. Yeah, I there's a lot of questions there. So some of it is politics, you know, it, yeah. it can be hard to say, you know, like we're going to go look for signs of life and to get that through Congress, you know, and, and to get support for the, these NASA missions. Um, and so it, it's partly the politics, uh, within NASA and, and, you know, within the government. Um, and then it's also the issue, you know, just, just getting to the point where we actually think we, we can have, you know, we, we can build these instruments that can make definitive detections of potential life. Uh, and we have a bunch of them on the, on this upcoming mission. So it should be a really cool mission. I'm really looking forward to perseverance. Yeah, me too. Me too. Astrobiology. There's just so much in this realm, realm for, you know, it's the food for thought for the to go and kind of explore these different questions about life and, oh, and trying dude. to understand if we're alone. There's just so much out there. Dude, you have no idea. This is like an hour is never going to cover it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been doing this for years of my life, and, uh, and there's still so many questions that I just want to go explore. What are you most excited about that's coming up, whether it's um, our, our astrobiological capabilities in terms of the field itself, or is there any NASA missions coming up uh, besides Perseverance, which you mentioned, um, that you're excited about? What, what turns your crank right now with uh, astrobiology? <laughs> yeah, there's there, there's some really cool missions coming <laughs> what up. What starts you, man? Yeah. What gets it <laughs> yeah. going, right? Um, yeah. So I, I have to say I'm really excited for Europa Clipper. Me uh, too. That's, an, that's an upcoming mission to send a spacecraft. It will orbit around Jupiter and Europa together. Uh, it should get dozens of flybys of Europa. Uh, it'll give us finally high resolution mapping of the entire surface of Europa. Uh, it will help us look for places to maybe send a lander eventually as well. Um, but it also has on board instruments for studying the chemistry of the surface, for better determining the thickness of Europa's uh, icy shell uh, and the depth of the ocean down below. Um, it'll help us to figure out a bit more uh, how salty that ocean most likely is. Um, and if there are plumes of water coming out of Europa, like there are in Enceladus, uh, Europa Clipper could actually study some of that material coming out of those plumes. Uh, and if those plumes are coming from the ocean water below the crust, man, that would be cool if there's signs of life inside of that fluid. Yeah. Um, and the, the instrument SUDA on board Europa Clipper is the one that would be specifically measuring some of the chemistry of those plumes if it can fly through them. Um, and, you know, I, I just... 
I, I can only imagine if we get there and we see these plumes and we can fly through them, that'll, that'll, that'll just be so cool. <laughs> That'd be gnarly. Uh, and then something else groovy that's coming up uh, is the Dragonfly mission that's going to go to Titan. Uh, so this is going to be a little drone. Um, I think it's going to have eight propellers. Yeah. Um, and it's Call it hop, what it basically. is, but it's a quadcopter, man. That's, that yeah, is... well, it's, a, it's a, like a dual quadcopter. <laughs> Everybody loves have this quadcopter. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, on both sides. And so that's going to be so, so cool. These missions uh, just keep so, getting cooler, man. <laughs> I know. Oh, and our technology is getting better. And, and you know, now that we're bringing in you know, younger people and, and more people to answer the questions that the engineers have and the scientists have about, you know, how can we get these data? How can we send these really cool missions? Um, and you know, and, and we're we're letting these en engineers just go ahead and go wild with it. The, the entry, descent, and landing, you know, uh, device for for getting Curiosity onto Mars was a feat of modern engineering that too few people respect, honestly. Uh, and so, sending something like like you know a dual quadcopter to to Titan, this large moon around Saturn, to have it fly through this hazy material in the atmosphere of titan and check out the ices and, and the gunk uh all this all these, these tholins this organic gunk on the surface of titan that's just radical man it's, it's very cool yeah i mean nasa's gotten to this point now he's you know what we got the rover thing we got that we can do a rover but let's mm -hmm. just what else can we do man let's you know we're doing quadcopters and dual quadcopters on titan yeah man that's next yeah and, and they're also sending one to mars i understand a quadcopter uh, yeah, so on Perseverance, there's going to be a small test, uh, a test of a, a, a helicopter mission, uh, a, a drone mission uh, to test that on Mars, uh, flying off the back of Perseverance, which is really cool. Uh, I help run uh, this competition every year. Uh, this year we didn't have it, unfortunately, but almost every year uh, out in the desert of Utah called the University Rover Challenge, uh, where undergraduate students, they'll, they'll spend a whole year, and a lot of them, this is like their, their undergraduate engineering capstone project uh they'll develop uh and build these mars rovers and then they bring them out to the desert in utah and, and usually have about 30 or 35 teams or so uh who show up uh in utah and, and then we, we give them these challenges as though their rovers are on mars and we haven't had any drones in a while uh primarily because of the the the, the, the rules the faa had for a while for flying drones near an active airport um but I think we're going to open that up again here soon because there were a few years where we had drones that would launch off the backs of these rovers and go do aerial surveillance. And it was just a really cool thing to see. And it really got me thinking a lot about uh, the future of Mars exploration if we start sending more drones there as well. Yeah, that, that sounds like a really great program. Mm. So are you, are, you, are you at CU right now? Or are you, are you, uh, what, are you, what are you doing in Colorado? Are you at CU or somewhere else? Uh, so I, I'm in Boulder, uh, but no longer at CU. I, I finished up my PhD at CU back in 2017. Uh, and since then, I've been working for Blue Marble Space. Uh, so I'm the communications director uh, for Blue Marble Space, also a research scientist with the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. And our organization is a nonprofit organization focused on, on building a more sustainable future uh, through understanding Earth system science and space exploration um, and so we, we have a research branch, which is our, our Institute of Science. Uh, we have, uh, I think, four dozen, maybe more than four dozen scientists uh, who are affiliated now with our organization. Uh, this summer, we brought on over 60 uh, interns, uh, mostly at the undergraduate to early graduate level in their careers. I actually have, uh, I brought 19 interns on this summer in two different projects uh, to work with me. One of those projects is specifically astrobiology. It's working for the Center for Life Detection Science out of NASA Ames, working on this knowledge base uh, and helping us develop our, our 
cumulative knowledge about biosignatures, what they are and how we can look for signs of life. Uh, I also brought on some interns to work with me uh, as research associates studying science communication. Uh, so their work this summer is learning about science journalism, how to share science through social media. Uh, they'll be working on projects in uh, how do we share topics in earth and space science with all of humanity. Very nice. Uh, Dustin, anything you want to you add? No, this is this has been unbelievable. This is one of the most fun uh, podcasts I think we've ever done, man. It's fascinating. Oh, it you could carry this by. on for hours. Yeah. Yeah. Th- thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah. It's it's always a blast. You start getting some of those, those ethical questions, the philosophy of astrobiology, and it, it can take you in some really weird oh, places. You're, so. you're lucky <laughs> I didn't ask you what makes us us. Then we would have really gone. <laughs> uh, we would look. Yeah. That was on my mind while you guys were talking mm-hmm. about that. Well, yeah. If you think what what is life is a hard enough question, what is consciousness? That's mm-hmm. yeah, that's right. That, yeah, you, you, you can spend forever thinking about that. Thinking about oh, yeah. that. Think about that before you put yourself in a digital yeah. <laughs> copy of yourself in an Android. That's right. See if, see right. what you're doing there. Okay. Well, all right. Well, Dr. Graham Lau, the cosmobiologist. That's your nickname online, right? Yes, it is. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much for <laughs> taking time out to join us. This has been a great one. I hope you'll come back because we just even didn't even scratch the surface of this no, topic. Not to. Oh, that'd be awesome. Okay. Well, on behalf of Dustin Gibson, I'm Tony Darnell. Thank you all so much for listening. And as always, keep looking up. Space Junk is produced by Deep Astronomy and sponsored by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California. Please visit our website at spacejunkpodcast.com. Also, please send any questions and comments or ideas for new episodes to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com.